I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Extensive intensive care. ER doctors in Quebec say extreme overcrowding in the province's hospitals is at a critical level. We'll speak with one doctor about what she says needs to change. Abandoned shipping. As attacks continue in the Red Sea, a growing number of companies are avoiding it, including one whose ship was hit on Friday. But a representative says it's hoping a U.S.-led coalition will smooth out the sailing. Emotional outpouring after weeks of warnings and worry. A volcano erupted last night in Iceland. A woman living nearby tells us she felt compelled to see it for herself and says that experience left her full of awe, respect and gratitude. Seismic thrift. A Virginia woman tells us she knew the vase she picked up at a Goodwill was something special, but she was still shocked to see just how much it fetched at auction. What they give up to give. Cozy up by the fireplace or the fireplace channel, whatever works for you, for our annual broadcast of the O. Henry Christmas classic, The Gift of the Magi. And, well, he got a stern Tolkien too. A writer publishes a book based on The Lord of the Rings and then tries to sue J.R.R. Tolkien's estate claiming copyright infringement. Clearly, he was living in fantasy land. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that pronounces that an epic fail. What were once extraordinary circumstances are becoming increasingly disturbingly commonplace. Long wait times in emergency rooms, stretchers in hallways, and healthcare workers completely overwhelmed. Now doctors in Quebec say the problem has reached a critical point, with some hospitals reaching occupancy rates of 200% this week, according to Index Santé. And they are calling on the province's health ministry to do more to address the problem. Today, Quebec Health Minister Christian Dubé spoke to some of those concerns at a news conference. Well, I think we went through a lot in the last three years, and uh, that's the reason we're telling the, the population that they can help us. I think if there is one message today, is the population can help us in that, managing really if they need to come to the emergency. That's, that's the first message. The second message We have a lot of vulnerable people that come because of influenza or because of COVID, and they should have been vaccinated. And I think that the situation over the next few weeks will deteriorate. I'm being very clear. The situation over uh, those two uh, key things, COVID and influenza, will not improve. Dr. Judy Morris is the president of the Association des Médecins d'Urgence du Québec, an association of ER doctors in Quebec. We reached her in Montreal. Dr. Morris, how much of a difference would it make if if people in Quebec listened to that warning and stayed away, if at all possible, from ERs? The ones that 
are feeling good enough and are well enough uh, and they still wait from the ER, yeah, it might help a little bit. Uh, the danger with that message is often uh, to miss the ones that actually have uh, a serious condition, a heart condition or, or a lung condition, and that don't show up because they're afraid they're going to wait you know, many hours in the waiting room. Uh, so it's it's a bit dangerous to, to send that message. That being said, they should really get a hold of their primary care provider or our, our new 811 line to try to see what is the best uh, yeah. setup for them to, to, to get some help or ask for some advice. Yeah. And that's if they have a primary care provider, as we know, that's an issue yeah. right across the country as well. What struck me as I was watching the news conference and, and listening there again just now is, you know, we do hear these these kinds of calls from time to time, but given the severity of the problem right now in Quebec, is that really the biggest problem, that too many people are coming when they don't need to? When you look at the numbers in, you know, absolute, uh, it, we've had visits uh, of the, at the same level in previous year. The real concern is that the capacity of our healthcare network is just not enough. We're stretched thin year, you know, the whole year. And when we see those little spikes uh, or when we lose the healthcare personnel and, you know, in our establishment, um, what happens is that we cannot, you know, uh, um, we cannot uh, safely provide care uh, and, and match it to the demand that's there. So we need to address uh, the state of our healthcare system and increase our capacity so that situations like this don't put us into trouble at, you know, every year at this time. Were you satisfied by what you heard from the health minister at the news conference today? Well, it's a step in the right direction. Uh, our sister association, the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, has been asking for kind of a national forum on this because the situation is tough in many places across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and at least now they're acknowledging that the situation is really difficult and solutions some medium to long term, but some other short term must be put in place. A situation like this doesn't happen overnight, as you know. What brought things to this place? Well, it's been uh, it's been something we've been seeing uh, mm-hmm. year after year. But uh, since in the past two years, we've lost uh, you know additional number of per- healthcare personnel that have left, that have retired, or that have you know changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the burnout after the pandemic, obviously. Uh, yes, that too. So we see ourselves with a reduced workforce, uh, it, it, and we're and the reverse should happen. We should increase the workforce. We should increase the number of beds, our long-term care hospital beds. So that has been, a, a, you know, a tough blow. But you know, we we were still struggling before. This is just, you know, making things worse uh, on the ground in the emergency room. Why do you think? the kinds of things that, that you're asking for and that you're calling for and have called for for quite some time. Why do you think that has, hasn't happened yet? Well, it, it, for sure, the personnel issue is a tough one. Mm-hmm. It's something that needs that needs work. We need, you know, to train more people. Uh, we need to make them want to come work in our hospitals and in long-term care facilities. And, and that's going to be the real challenge. But beyond that, there are other solutions to spread a little bit the pressure across the healthcare network and not just disproportionately, uh, you know, on the shoulder of, uh, of the emergency room team. Dr. Gilbert Boucher also spoke today at that news conference. We're going to play for you, Dr. Morris, and our listeners a little bit of what he said specifically about ERs. 
I had some people text me this morning. They walk into the uh, eMERGE last night and there was 12 stretcher patients all on monitor waiting and they were alone in the emergency. I mean, that's almost a full shift. You're starting your shift and during the night you're going to get ambulances. There's going to be people in the waiting room and it's just overwhelming. So you care for the sickest, but that's why we need, we need not to be in the 200% range. 200% capacity, as we mentioned in the introduction as well. Does that situation, does that image, does that ring true to you as well? Definitely. it's uh, Those are numbers we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. It, it, they keep on going up, uh, and it, it's widespread. It's not just one or two hospitals that are struggling. It's across many regions in the province. And, and we know that when we're at that level of crowding, uh, there there is bound to have, uh, you know, worse outcome for patients, suboptimal care delivered, lack of space, lack of, uh, you know, monitored beds. And, and ultimately, it, it burns out the personnel that it has to work in this environment. And that means mortality, deaths beyond what you would normally see in an ER. It, yeah. Uh, studies have de- described that. Other, you know, healthcare uh, networks that have studied this have, have noticed this. We've unfortunately had events, not just in Quebec, across the mm-hmm. country occurring. And we don't want that. And that's why we're, you know, my colleagues have, have uh, kind of done a cry for help, you know, writing directly to the health minister and saying, this is not acceptable. We need to address this. We need to address this now. In the meantime, it's dire. It's, it's and bad doesn't even seem to be the appropriate word. Uh, and we heard the minister say, you know, it's going to get worse because of cases of flu and COVID as well. So how do your colleagues, how do hospitals prepare for that? It's tough. Uh, I mean, we, we're used to chaos. We're used to being busy. Uh, but it's, uh, it, there's an added layer of uh, difficulty uh, that everyone working in our environments are, are going through. You feel like you're helpless sometimes when you see the, num- the, the long waits and the crowded emergency rooms. You're like, where do we start? And, and are we going to miss something uh, just because of the sheer you know, number of patients we have in front of us? Dr. Morris, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Dr. Judy Morris is the president of the Association des Médecins d'Urgence du Québec. She's in Montreal. Icelanders have been wading through weeks of tremors to see what nature had in store for them. And last night they found out. Under the peninsula south of the capital, there was an earthquake swarm. Then the magma under the surface erupted. It created a huge crack in the ground and threw plumes of flames and smoke high into the air. Christine Gunnarsdott here lives not far from the eruption site. She decided to get a closer look. We reached her today at home in Hapnafirush, Iceland, on the outskirts of Reykjavik. Kristen, I've seen some of the video and the photographs you took. A stunning is a word that comes to, to my mind, certainly, when I see it. But what did it feel like for you to see this with your own eyes? To put it in words, it was absolutely mind-blowing. And uh, goosebumps from top to toe. And, uh, yeah, it, it's it's difficult to put, it, put in words. It was so, so uh, phenomenal. And did you see it from your home initially? No, actually, I had to drive like for 15 minutes between Hapnafjörður and the Keflavik airport. 
what made you want to go towards the danger? Well, I was actually located there when it happened, uh, close by. But as soon as I managed to take a look at it, I, I drove home. Were there others out there? Yes, there were. Um, when this happened, of course, uh, people were just minding their own business, uh, doing daily things. And um, there is a very big road that lies from Hapnafirder to Keplavik. And it's a very busy road because that is our main road to the international airport. So everyone who were, were driving on that road could actually see the volcano eruption. Mm. And not, not just the smoke, but also everything that was coming spitting from the ground. Yeah, I can imagine everyone just stopped in their tracks at that moment. Yeah, well, Icelanders, we are a little bit a different kind of breed. <laughs> what do you mean? Say, if I may say so. We were Vikings back in the days, and uh, Iceland is the land of uh, the fire and ice. And uh, we are called the Viking nation and so on. We still speak the old Viking language, Icelandic. So uh, we are very used to mother nature if we if we put it nicely of course we uh, are cautious and yes this is mind-blowing but we start to think right away we don't want to cause any more danger to mm -hmm. others so we we are very cautious and and uh, aware that this was coming so we have been ready and preparing <laughs> for it have you seen other eruptions before i ask because i wonder how it compares this time yes i actually have seen several um uh, this one actually uh, just uh, affected me a little bit different than all the others uh, because yes it's close to home and it's kind of like in our backyard, if we can phrase it that way. But the eruption 2010, uh, that of course was mind blowing as well, but in a different way. And you had to hike for five hours to reach that eruption to see that and experience that. Mm -hmm. So it was more in a safe zone for a person that lives in a capital area. But of course that area, where the eruption happened affected the towns mm -hmm. that were close by and the animals and, and it was very, very tough. The ash really yeah. treated us badly. But this one, there is just something special about it. And uh, <laughs> it's difficult to describe how. And people will remember that 2010 eruption. It certainly made headlines because of the ash it spewed and how far that, that ash traveled. But I take your point about how, how much closer to home and in your backyard uh, this this seems. We had a conversation oh, several weeks ago now with a woman who usually lives in Grindavik, which had to be completely evacuated. And she was in a house with family and, and all of the children packed into a very tiny space and worried about what might happen. We know that authorities are now saying the intensity is decreasing. There is no threat to people's lives. But what are you hearing from neighbors? And, and maybe you know people who normally live in Grindavik about how they're feeling about all of this, because it is so close. So, um, first of all, the latest news just reported uh, that we can have a so-called surprise uh, eruption in Grindavik that could happen any moment. Hopefully it won't happen. <laughs> Hopefully it won't happen. But they are afraid that there will be a crater opening in Grindavik, and same with Blue Lagoon. So we are out, not out of danger, even mm -hmm. though everything 
uh, is safe at the moment, it can change quickly. So my heart is completely with the people who have their homes and their lives in Grindavik. If I even try to put myself into their shoes, I would be absolutely terrified, terrified. Because losing your home <laughs> and just yeah. sit around and have to just wait for it to happen. I, I cannot imagine how mm. how that can possibly be. Yeah, especially after they've been waiting so so long as yeah. it is. You know, you mentioned earlier that people in Iceland are, are used to the power of Mother mm-hmm. Nature and you recognize that power. But I wonder how seeing this happen so close to you uh, and taking these images, how has it left you feeling about that power? So first of all, I'm just grateful <laughs> for for all the simple things in life. You realize anything can happen tomorrow, you know? And also grateful for how lucky we Icelanders are, how we can unite when we need to, when we need to help the people of Grindavik and evacuate the whole town everybody get together, unite and help as much as we can. And that is something that we just do because we feel it in our heart. It's our obligation to help. Kristen, I'm glad we could speak. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Kristen Gunnarsdottir is a sports trainer who lives in Hapnafirush, Iceland. That is where we reached her. A pair of gold Nikes a Portland homeless shelter found in its donation bin has sold for nearly 68000 Canadian dollars. That is more than double what they were expected to go for. And that sum will go towards funding the shelter's work. You might have heard our interview about those sneakers last week. They were made for director Spike Lee ahead of the Oscars in 2019, and somehow they made their way to that donation bin. Now, meanwhile, on the other side of the U.S., another item has sold at auction for way more than it was expected to go for. This time, a vase that Jessica Vincent found at a Goodwill store in June in Hanover County, Virginia. She bought it for around five bucks, and it went for more than $140,000 Canadian. We reached Jessica Vincent in Brookneal, Virginia. You were watching, Jessica, the the auction online. Uh, You knew it was going to make some money, but what was it like to see the number keep going up and up and up? It was unbelievable to see the number go up and up. I had tears in my eyes. I was so excited. It's just a life-changing amount of money. It was incredible. I have never felt so excited in my whole life, I don't think. You're an experienced thrifter, so you get little excitement when you find a find, I'm sure. This is on another level, uh, it sounds like. Absolutely. This is a level that I never dreamed of. Although I never I never crossed it out of my mind that it couldn't happen either, though. Mm-hmm. I kind of grew up with the stories, um, you know, yard sale fine, yeah. $3 yard sale fine, sells for a million dollars, those sort of things. So. I always felt it was a possibility, but I never I never dreamed that it would happen, and especially the way it did. Yeah. It was just such an average day. So you're, you're at a Goodwill earlier this year. You see this vase. What, what drew you to it? Initially, it was the size and it was the color. I saw it from a distance when I first 
sort of came into the doors and got near the shelf. I couldn't get very close to it at first. There were so many people in the store and there was a lot of people with carts in the aisle sort of blocking my way. But initially it was definitely the size and the color that caught my eye. But it, at first I didn't even know it was glass. I wasn't even sure what it was made of when I first saw it. It is glass. And what does it look like? I mean, I've seen it, but for our listeners, describe yeah. what you saw. It's, it has a very large size. It's almost 14 inches tall. It's just the most beautiful iridized glass when you see it up close. It had just such a pretty iridescence and the the brush strokes around the bottle in the amethyst and in the, the teal. It was just so beautiful. I knew it was not painted. I knew it was glass when I had it in my hand and had it up close. It was just such quality. Like, I could feel it. It was heavy. I knew it was blown. The bottom was polished and finished very nicely. Mm-hmm. It didn't have, like, the crude sort of mark on the bottom. It was it was finished beautifully. And so you knew it was special, but did you think it was this special? No. No, no. <laughs> not at all. I knew Murano was pretty good, so I figured... Um, Murano glass I could from decipher Italy. Murano mm-hmm. glass, yes. And it did have the Murano Italia mark. Mm-hmm. There was another mark above it, which was the factory mark, which I could not make out at the time. But when I saw Murano, I knew it was a good quality piece and it maybe maybe worth like a thousand or two thousand dollars. I wasn't really sure, but I knew it was something nice. So were you planning to display it on a mantle or something like that, or for a thousand you you were gonna check it out. You were gonna see. I was going to check it out and see, but initially, um, just my gut instinct was, yes, just bring it home and sort of put it in my random collection of things. I'm very eclectic collector. Mm-hmm. I'm a maximalist. I love things and beautiful objects. So, yes, I was just going to bring it home and find a spot in my bookshelf for it. And so what made you want to research it a little, little bit more, jump online and, and ask the, well, the community? <laughs> Yeah, well, I love to know what I have. So I love to look at marks. If something is marked, I think that's great because it kind of gives me a leg up on doing my research. I knew since it was marked, somebody must be familiar with it, even though I was not. So I got on an art glass identification group that I'm a member of on Facebook. They were like, oh, send that to the Murano group. I think they would be interested in that. So I said, okay, I'll join the Murano group because I was not a member. I posted pictures and my little explanation of, you know, what it was. People knew that it was Vanini pretty much right away. They're like, oh, that's a Vanini mark. Um, Vanini being the the maker, the factory Mm -hmm. that, that made it, even though it is a Carlo Scarpa design. Nobody at first knew that it was a Carlos Scarpa, but then I had one person chime in and they were like, I have loved Carlos Scarpa and that is definitely a penalate. I was just like, oh my goodness. So when you hear that though, and then get estimates, I mean, which were much lower than what it ended up going for, does it go from excitement to total fear that something is going to happen to it? It really um, is a lot of responsibility. I think when you find out something you own is so valuable. It kind of makes you go through all the scenarios in your head, like what if? So I was very careful with it and I just sort of bubble wrapped it. I wrapped it up in the, I think I had a tablecloth around it and I put it into a box and I just sort of left it for safekeeping. Um, Because yeah, it, it did make me a little bit nervous when I found out, you know, what the value could be. Even at thirty to 50000 that is a, a whole lot of money to me. So, And how will that money help you and your family now? 
It is going to help immensely. Um, I purchased a 1930s farmhouse earlier in the year. It has pretty much no heat. I'm working on two space heaters right now. My dream is to get uh, HVAC, like heating and cooling, and um, a dishwasher. I definitely, a dishwasher is really on my list of things to do, even though it's not a huge, like, you know, deal to most people. It's a really yeah. big deal to me because I've been wanting one for a long time. So, yeah, no, that those, these sound like very, very sound uh, and smart decisions. And given that uh, Carlos Scarpa was an architect and an artisan, you know, back in the forties, right. maybe he would appreciate your commitment to your new your new home, your new structure. Sure, yeah, I hope so. Does this change your approach to thrifting now, or just prove that you've been doing it right all this time? I think it's a little bit of validation for me. It's like, yes, this can happen. And it happens just when you don't even expect it. It's not that you're, for me, it's not that I was going out seeking, oh, I'm going to find something really valuable. I just went with what I loved and I picked up what I loved. And it just really worked out in my favor in such a beautiful way. Well, Jessica, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you. That was superstar thrifter Jessica Vincent in Brookneal, Virginia. Long before Sauron, the original rings of power were forged by the elven lord Calembrimbor and dwarven smith Narvi in Eregion, near the Misty Mountains. In the 22nd year of the reign of the High King Elisar, the blue wizard... No, I'm sorry. Sorry. I, I, I can't do it. <clears throat> that was hard to read. You have to give J.R.R. Tolkien credit. He sure invented a lot of people and creatures, and he sure gave them a lot of fancy names. And if you have really burrowed into Middle-earth, you recognize the names in that passage I just read. But that was not a synopsis of a long-lost Tolkien book, or even of the Amazon series The Rings of Power, which is based on Tolkien's work. It was a synopsis of The Fellowship of the King by Demetrius Polychron. Yeah, I said uh, Demetrius Polychron. No, I, I don't know either. Now, lots of people make up their own stories based in the world created by Mr. Tolkien, but Demetrius Polychron took things further than most, insofar as he self-published that book in hardcover and then sued the Tolkien estate and Amazon, which he said were infringing on his copyright. "'Twas a bold gambit for Demetrius Polychron, yet lo did it come to pass that he totally lost. Partly because the Tolkien estate and Amazon are giant entities with endless money, and partly because his book came out after the Amazon series. So, in fact, he was infringing, and now he has to destroy all copies of his book and never write Tolkien-based material again. Just a, a, a disastrously bad idea that backfired horribly. Now he can't ever write about any character from Middle-earth again, and that is a hard hobbit to break. (music) 
In the face of increased attacks, a growing number of shipping companies are reconsidering traveling through the Red Sea. But one group will soon be heading there anyway, not in spite of the risks, but because of them. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin announced that his country would lead a task force aimed at deterring attacks by Houthi rebels in Yemen. The initiative has been dubbed Operation Prosperity Guardian and involves several countries, including Canada, which will deploy two planners and one intelligence analyst next week. The announcement comes as at least a dozen shipping companies have paused operations in the Red Sea. Among them is Hapag Lloyd, whose ship was attacked last Friday. Niels Haupt is with the company. We reached him in Hamburg, Germany. Niels, does this task force reassure you at this point? Yes, it gives us comfort. Uh, Each and every support is appreciated at the moment because um, for the time being, we would not go through the Red Sea and through the the Suez Canal because it doesn't feel safe and secure because if we go through it, we need to be safe for our crews, for the vessels and for the containers we are carrying. You are rerouting ships until safety in in the region can be guaranteed for your vessels. Uh, You and other shipping companies have been calling for a task force like this, but is, is it enough to get you to reverse that decision at this stage? That is very difficult to say. For the moment, we decided for all vessels um, until the end of the year to reroute them via the Cape of Good Hope. Um, That means a longer uh, travel time for sure for all of our ships. But uh, we feel that this is a a safer procedure for our seafarers and also for us as a company. How much longer? Well, that depends on on the destination of the vessel. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the eastern Mediterranean, normally it is 13 days from the eastern Met to Singapore. Um, With uh, avoiding the canal, it is 31 days. So this is basically three weeks more. If you look at the east coast of the U.S., we would normally travel 25 days via the canal. Without the canal and taking the Cape of Good Hope, it will be 31 days. And going to North Europe would be like roughly two weeks more than going through the Suez Canal. So that's that's summing up to a lot of additional travel days. And what about the cost of that additional travel? Well, I mean, if you just take the fuel cost uh, and if you think about the East Med, as I just said, so three weeks longer, this will mean an additional fuel cost of, you know, roughly if we take all 25 ships for the two weeks until the new year, this will be a two digit amount, two digit million amount for Habakloid just for additional fuel cost. Not talking about provision, not talking about charter cost, not talking about you know, uh, additional terminal or port cost or whatever. How long before that trickles down to to consumers? So this is not a decision of a shipping line. This is a decision of our key multinational customers, whether they um, will will hand over the additional cost to the the consumers. We would expect that rates are going up. As uh, as I've just explained, the, uh, the travel time will increase significantly. And of course, this has to be given to, 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 the, to our customers, right? And what kinds of things are on board your vessels? Well, basically, this is all the the normal stuff you would expect coming from the Far East. This is electronics, this is mobile phones, this is sports equipment, this is shoes, this is textiles, this is machinery or machinery parts, spare parts, plastics, household goods, furniture. So that would be in our containers Mm -hmm. to the U.S. or to Europe or the Met. How would you rate the significance of what is happening there right now in terms of shipping? Certainly you went through a lot, as other companies did during the pandemic. 
Yeah, I mean, if you compare it to the pandemic, that was a really, that was a global issue. It was a global supply chain disruption. What we are seeing now is a disruption, but which is only affecting a few trades worldwide. I wouldn't compare it with COVID. I would also say that it is firm that shelves will not be empty. I would also say we will see some congestion probably in some ports in Europe or in the eastern part of the U.S., but it will not be as bad as we have experienced it like two or three years ago. Let's go back to Friday for a moment when one of your ships were attacked um, because you sound very calm about it in terms of the impact overall. But on Friday, when that news comes in, what did you think? What did you find out? So, um, of course, when we when we learned about this, uh, it was shocking. Um, it was shocking for us as a company and it was shocking for sure for the seafarers on board. Lucky us, nobody was harmed. But, of course, some of our containers were destroyed. Some containers fell in, into the ocean. Uh, the ship could continue its, its journey to Singapore. Um, but that was clear for us that with this experience, we would not dared to to bring any more ships into the Red Sea passing the Suez Canal. So, and we will only do this if it is absolutely clear and safe for our ships and for our seafarers to go through the Red Sea and the canal in the future. As we mentioned, you, you and other companies were pushing for this task force. So as more details of, of what that group will be doing come out, what specific things are you watching for? What will you need to see and hear that would make you and your colleagues ready to make the decision that it's safe to go back to the Red Sea routes that you were using before? I mean, I mean at first, I, I would like to say that we very much appreciate this international coalition, which hopefully will help to make the passage through the canal and the Red Sea safe again. We would like to look at it. And as soon as we are totally convinced that passing the Red Sea and the canal is safe, we would like to continue to the old processes, but um, that might take some time. And for the time being, it is very difficult to say when this will be. Um, but we are very hopeful and very optimistic that with a new international coalition coming up, you know, problems might be solved in due time. Niels, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Niels Haupt heads corporate communications for the shipping company Hapag Lloyd. We reached him in Hamburg, Germany. When was the last time you said, hmm, I never thought about it that way? The Current aims to give you that moment every single day. Hello, I'm Matt Galloway, and our award-winning team brings you stories and conversations to expand your worldview. Sometimes they connect to the news of the day, sometimes to the issues of our time. And you'll hear all kinds of people on The Current, from best-selling authors to the Prime Minister to maybe your neighbor. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, now including YouTube. I'll talk to you soon. A wise person or thing once said, maybe Christmas doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas perhaps means a little bit more. Those, of course, are the timeless words of Dr. Seuss's Grinch. And that is the sentiment at the heart of O. Henry's 1905 story, The Gift of the Magi, a title that comes from the Bible story about the wise men bringing gifts to Jesus. 
Our As It Happens holiday tradition of Fireside Al Maitland's reading of The Gift of the Magi doesn't date back quite that far, but it is still a classic. And we bring it to you once again tonight. $1.87. That was all. And 60 cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. And the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it. Which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles. With sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home. A furnished flat at eight dollars per week. It did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. In the vestibule below was a letter box into which no letter would go, and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereto was a card bearing the name Mr. James... Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity when its possessor was being paid $30 per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to $20, the letters of Dillingham looked blurred, as though they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della. Which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with a powder puff. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a grey cat walking a grey fence in a grey backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only one dollar and eighty-seven cents with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. Twenty dollars a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only one dollar and eighty-seven cents to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him. Something fine and rare and sterling. Something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen a pier glass in an eight-dollar flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within twenty seconds. Rapidly, she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now, there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window some day to dry just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor, with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now, 
Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. She did it up again nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket. On went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Sofroni, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Sofroni. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, said Madame. Take your hat off and let's have a sight of the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum watch chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him, quietness and value. The description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the 87 cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. So she got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love, which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within 40 minutes, her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully, and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? What could I do with a dollar and 87 cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the watch chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his step on the stair, away down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit of saying little silent prayers about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, Please, God, make him think I'm still pretty. The door opened, and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only 22, and to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat, and he was without gloves. Jim stepped inside the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, 
nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, she cried, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold it because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair? asked Jim laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor. And cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well, anyhow? I'm me without my air, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your hair is gone, he said, with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you. Sold and gone, too. It's Christmas Eve, boy. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, she went on with a sudden serious sweetness, but nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance, Jim seemed to quickly wake. He unfolded his Della. For ten seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week, or a million a year. What's the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give you the wrong answer. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion would be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, he said, about me. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you will unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the Lord of the Flat. For there lay the combs, the set of combs that Della had worshipped for long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoiseshell with jewel rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful, vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers but the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped up like a little singed cat and cried, Oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. 
Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell, said he, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now, suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest. Everywhere they are wisest. They are the Magi. The late fireside Al Maitland reading O. Henry's The Gift of the Magi. The competition at the Luxor Hotel on the Las Vegas Strip was fierce, and it all came down to this moment. This is bold. This is bold. Look at him crossing his arms. No, no, no. The guy is flexing. He's flexing. He's flexing. What is he doing? Wait, look at this guy. Look at him. No, no. 13. 13. 10. 9. Oh, come on. What is seven? That was not the commentary from a big Vegas boxing match. But it was a fight that Andrew the Annihilator Nye won. Earlier this month, he took home his third consecutive XL World Championship. No, not XL the gum, although honestly, that might make more sense. The Microsoft XL that gives you the work sweats, the one that to the layperson seems marginally more complicated than the Large Hadron Collider. The Wall Street Journal has said the XL World Championship included both high drama and hexadecimals. Toronto's Michael Jarman came second in the competition. We reached him in Durham, Maine. Oh, Michael, the tension, the excitement. Uh, You were sitting in first place until the the final stretch there. So what were those moments like for you? Yeah, it was was pretty exciting. It's the first time they really sort of had the competition live on a stage in front of a a live audience who are cheering. So uh, it's a lot of pressure. And uh, I thought when I went ahead early on that uh, it could be my year, but... uh, I knew that Andrew, he was still very strong and uh, he could come and overtake me. And uh, fortunately, he just had a little more staying power. Andrew Nye, who who won, also known as the Annihilator. Do you have a nickname? Uh, me, not me myself personally. But uh, I think a lot of my adoring fans call themselves the Jarmy Army, which uh, <laughs> if that's what they want to call themselves. But uh, I'm very happy to go along with it. Listen, it's great to have a, a, a fan base behind you. Absolutely. And for to illustrate it for our listeners, what, you know, there's you are all on a stage, each in front of your own screen. Then there's a giant screen behind you, and that it shows what 
each of you are doing. It sort of toggles between to show all the different uh, shortcuts and, and things that, that you're doing to try to, to get through each of the levels, right? Yeah, the, the live stream sort of has everybody's uh, screen and sort of what buttons they're pressing. So you can sort of see you know, what shortcuts they're pressing, how fast they're getting through everything. And uh, yeah, they hop between usually whoever's sort of either on the risk of sort of being knocked out or uh, whoever's like just scored some points or took the lead. And they sort of look at what they're doing and sort of try and explain what's going on. I did feel a little bit of heartbreak, even just in the short time I was watching uh, Jakob or Jake, I, I believe they they also said when he was, you know, they just come and tap you on the shoulder. You're done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you sit there and like you do look back at the scoreboard and try and figure yeah. out where you are, but you are uh, because the scoreboard's behind you, not always looking. You do live in constant fear of uh, Stephen coming behind you to tap you on the shoulder and say, "Oh, yeah, you're out." Most people, you know, and I'm sure you've heard this before, they want to slam their laptop shut, shut down Excel when they leave work and never see it again. But you know, they'll have to confront it again on a Monday morning. Did you? Do you not have enough of it in your professional life that you said? I've got to. I've got to use this for fun too. Yeah, well, it, it, I think there's a couple of things there. First, I think it's a very different side of Excel. It's not sort of having to do something in a corporate environment. It's sort of more puzzle solving and sort of doing that for fun. And you know, many people like doing puzzles, whether that's crosswords, Sudoku's, whatever, in their spare time. So it's just a different version of that. And also, I, I don't really get. Um, I, I got to use a lot of Excel uh, many years ago when mm-hmm. I was a bit younger. But nowadays, as you move at the corporate ladder, you know, you don't get much of the Excel work to do yourself anymore. So it's a uh, nice to open things back up and uh, get to open a spreadsheet once in a while. Is this all a strategy by Microsoft to try to make their product sexy, fun? <laughs> I mean, they are certainly sponsors of the competition, and I think uh, it does show like a different you know, side to Excel and you know the, the amount of uh, response we've had over the years we've been doing this uh, from the media of people so I think usually a bit bemused that this is a thing, but uh, coming to see it like, as, as more and more of like an actually exciting thing that you can watch. You know, I think there certainly is a benefit to them. Whether or not that's their sort of game plan overall, I, I can't possibly know, unfortunately. How did you get into it? So um, before they uh, ran this competition, they used to be in a competition called Model Off, uh, which was more finance based and less sort of to do with just using Excel to sort of solve games, which is what the current competition is. And when I started work, my uh, my sort of boss of my first ever project was a woman called Hilary Smart, who just won like the world championships of Model Off, which I thought was pretty cool. So I entered it uh, in 2017 and came third, then won it in 2018. Um, and then, you know, with this competition replacing the last one, it just sort of seemed like a natural uh, continuation. And yeah, I just think it's amazing. They managed to get it like televised on ESPN and like in all the papers and people are talking about it. So we talked about the different levels and, and there's talk in the commentary about the cases. So you're all given these cases in each level to solve. Can you describe what those cases are? What do you have to solve? Yeah. So for the Excel championship, they try and make it a little like, you know, it, it's not to do with finance at all. And it's more sort of gamified almost. So in the past, we've had you know board games like Monopoly or chess. There's been countings for like du- uh, scoring for darts or cricket. Uh, and then the semi-finals, they had like a couple of games to do with sort of um, you know, scoring various games and you know moving through a maze. And then the final was a case based on the uh, like an online game called Eve Online, which uh, I think is sort of like a, a spaceship sort of style multiplayer game. But um, uh, a lot of people call it spreadsheets in space, and apparently it's the first ever um, video game to be given an official Excel add-in. So it was sort of based on mining asteroids and buying spaceships and whatnot, um, based on you know, prices of things. What we, what do you think will give you the edge 
next year? Oh, it's a good question. You know, a lot of people sort of continuing to improve and thinking of sort of new and exciting ways to you know deal with these problems. Once you've sort of done a few of these problems, like they do sort of come into natural categories of like, is there a map which you have to like extract data from? Uh, is it sort of a dice game that you need to sort of extract dice rolls from and do something with? And there's certainly like a meta that continues to evolve and like how people tend to deal with these problems. So, uh, yeah, I think just sort of keep practicing. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've come second to Andrew two of the last three years and I lost in the semis the other year. So I think, well, surely next year will be my next year. Uh, it will be my year. Will you keep going until you win? Uh, yeah, I, well, I think I'll keep going uh, for the near future anyway. It is a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, I really do want to get one more win under my belt. Uh, you do win like a lovely sort of novelty championship debt belt like the WWE, which I, did uh, see I the think belt. would it's... look nice on my wall. <laughs> yes. uh, I think it would look nice on my wall. My girlfriend disagrees, funnily enough, but uh, I think it would be a lovely wall decoration. So uh, yeah, I do, I do really want to uh, win at least one more uh, before I sort of hang up my keyboard. Michael, I'm glad we could speak. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Really appreciate it. I had a great time. Take care. Thanks. Bye. That was Excel competitor Michael Jarman in Durham, Maine. In the video, Taters sits on a blue couch. Then a red dot appears, and Taters begins to chase the laser beam around and around, as three-year-old tabby cats tend to do. It's a classic cat video, one of millions out there that's been shared far and wide, but this one has been shared much farther than others. It came to Earth from deep space, 31 million kilometers away. Mira Srinivasan is the operations lead for NASA's Deep Space Optical Communications Experiment. We reached her in Pasadena. Mira, does Taters have any idea of the kind of stir he's caused? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. Uh, Taters was, was there virtually uh, okay. via the WebEx, but I'm not sure. Probably <laughs> it's best that he not know. <laughs> Probably. Just running around on the couches as Taters does. Whose cat is this? So it's the cat uh, belonging to one of the uh, JPL employees who works in the JPL Design Lab, which is the uh, organization that put together the video. And how did that video and that idea come together? Well, I think it was, uh, you know, cats. Cat videos are certainly a thing on the Internet. You know, cats like lasers. People like playing with cats with lasers. And so there was just that kind of synergy there. I thought it was a very clever uh, kind of idea. So many points of contact. To be clear, Taters is here on Earth and has remained here on Earth. But the video was taken to space. Am I right? That's right. Taters is completely safe. (laughs) That's good to know. That's good to know. Though maybe, I mean, maybe Taters would have liked to go to space. We'll see if that that opportunity comes up. But at this stage, so the video's up there, then what did you do with it? So uh, we have our technology demonstration where we have our instrument that's uh, flying on the Psyche spacecraft. Uh, We have weekly passes, and on this particular pass, uh, by pass I mean it's the actual kind of a link opportunity. So that particular one on December 11th, we powered up our flight terminal on the Psyche spacecraft. We got all of our ground stations uh, powered up and going. So we have, you know, ground laser transmission that we use to guide the pointing of our flight terminal. Our flight terminal then transmitted this uh, Taters video as the data that's communicated via pulsing 
a very high-speed laser that's on the spacecraft. And that was received down at our receiver, uh, which is located at the Palomar Observatory Hale Telescope. And that collected the data, kind of decoded it, and saved it as a file that was then fetched over the regular Internet, you know, the terrestrial Mm -hmm. Internet, back here to JPL, where those of us uh, on the team in the kind of mission command uh, area uh, on JPL then were able to view it, uh, playing back on just a regular laptop video, you know, player. As cat videos do all over the world every day. <laughs> that's right. That's, that, that's exactly right. That's <laughs> how, exactly right. How yeah. quickly did all of that happen? So at the distance that we were transmitting this from, which was about, I'm going to put it in, in, in English units, but it was um, about 20 million miles. It's 0.2 astronomical units, which is the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So from that distance, it takes about 100 seconds just in light time. So that's the delay for the signal just to arrive back at the Earth. And then at that point, we were getting the data at a rate of 267 megabits per second, which is comparable to broadband speed. So that's a kind of the bandwidth of all of the video content. And then it, it, the interesting thing is that it actually took longer for the data to go from Palomar, which is in San Diego County, to JPL in Pasadena than it did for it to come down from space. So <laughs> that's just kind of an interesting fact. Why? You know, there are all kinds of latencies that are just yeah. associated with the terrestrial communications. <laughs> and so it just shows how efficient the laser communications can be when the conditions are favorable. You mentioned all the the points of of connection that we have to the cats and lasers and these kinds of videos. But people also love videos from space or things that NASA puts out. I mean, it's not like you were struggling, I think, I would imagine, to to get attention. So why go this route? Why incorporate the cat? Well, I think that it's just, it's fun, right? I mean, they're, like we said, they're all these points of connection. And we wanted something a little lighthearted. We had kind of some finite amount of uh, memory space because we uploaded this video ahead of time. And so we thought that this would be kind of a short snippet of something that would demonstrate in a fun way what our project is about, which is really being able to enable, you know, high-speed transmission of data from deep space distances. And what's the the bigger goal? Well, the bigger goal is to basically uh, enable this kind of capability uh, farther and farther out. We are very crowded in terms of the bandwidth that's uh, being occupied in the regular kind of conventional radio frequency communication systems. So uh, we don't have those limitations once we go into the optical portion of the, uh, the radio frequency spectrum. And then in addition, as we want to do more things, uh, support human exploration to Mars, for example, we want to have the capability to stream video and so this is kind of along the path towards making that a reality. And and how is it different if we could just underline that, you know, we, we've certainly seen rovers send back images from Mars, for example. So what's this changing, what you've, what you've done this time? Well, so basically we're able to pack up um, more uh, data into the same amount of time. So a lot of the communications uh, via radio frequency is a kind of equivalent to, you know, dial-up modem speed. So that's on the order of, you know, tens to hundreds of kilobits per second. But the speeds that we're talking about are 
you know, in the hundreds of kilobits per second at closer ranges. Now, obviously, as we get farther out in distance, <clears throat> our capability uh, in terms of data rate does go down a bit. But the idea here is that, uh, you know, with this additional capability, we can basically make it possible to, to talk to people, to play video. And in the past with uh, Mars and so on, it's taken a long time to accumulate the data that we then put together to uh, display those great images that we see of, of, of Mars, for example. Does Taters have an agent now? <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll have to talk to his owner about that, or rather, <laughs> uh, maybe it's the other way around. I, I understand. Right? <laughs> maybe, maybe this is just a, a one-and-done situation for Taters. They, they've That's made right. their mark. Mira, yeah. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. Mira Srinivasan is the operations lead for NASA's Deep Space Optical Communications Experiment. She's in Pasadena, California. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.